Today's storyteller is a woman I really admire. I have known Jess for years now and I've always admired the work she did. From the time she frequently went to Uganda on humanitarian trips, raising money for the cause, to her work as a model. A few years ago, she moved to Lagos and would constantly speak about adapting to life in Lagos as co-hosts of the podcast Loose Talk. One thing was clear, Jess was facing quite a number of challenges, but she was also finding her way in making Lagos home. We often hear of people living in Nigeria and other African countries moving to the West for a better life, safety, and opportunities, but quite a number of people are moving the opposite direction as well. In my discussion with Jess, she speaks about everything that led to the move, growing into herself, and trusting the process. Like the last episode, this is a coming-of-age story, a story I believe will help many people on their journey of self-discovery and growth. It's one of the longer stories on the show because I felt taking away some parts wouldn't capture the story as I wanted to. So uh, for those who usually say the episodes are short, this is a longer episode for you so you can enjoy that. Without further ado, here is Jess' story. listening to the voice of Jess Esfines. My phone name is Jessica Chibwezi and we are recording this dope podcast in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm 26 years old. I was born and raised in Virginia, USA. I'm the first child and the only girl of four uh, children. I have three younger brothers, two-parent household. Um, I have, you know, a mom and dad. My parents um, I married in Nigeria, moved to America to, you know, find greener pastures, all that good stuff. And then they had me and then my three younger brothers. I definitely grew up being um, a tomboy. And in addition to being a tomboy, I definitely grew up having to grow thick skin because there's a way that I think our culture treats girls that they would raise me up in that way. But then as they had boys, maybe a little bit of how they were raising their sons Indirectly, they would raise me as that. So I did grow up with a chip on my shoulder. And I think it has greatly, I, I know, not, let me not say think, I know it has greatly contributed to my, uh, like how I behave now. A lot of it good and a lot of it bad, but it's only in my later years in life that I've realized that, okay, I definitely did inherit some things that are preventing me from, you know, doing certain things now because of that upbringing. It was kind of, interesting it was kind of conflicting being american born and then having nigerian born parents and these are nigerian born parents who like they were full-fledged adults adult adult before they moved to america so they carried the traditions they carried the cultures they carried the ideals they carried the beliefs the values of nigeria came to america and i know um, america is a funny place like they want you to assimilate and water down your culture in order to thrive there we don't immigrant, we don't do that like people do that to pass their citizenship exam but in the heart of it you are keeping your culture deep within you and you're trying to embed it in your immediate environment in your home in your children so there was a lot of conflict in terms of trying to understand my identity because in the household 
you are a dad who has to sweep and cook and you know you're 10 years old taking care of your siblings when in america they tell you oh there's this thing that they used to call latchkey kid or something that they would teach us like oh you have to be a certain age before you can take care of someone we didn't follow none of those rules so i would go to school learn these type of rules and then realize that okay this can't this doesn't apply in my family so i would always feel confused because like okay my you know caucasian teacher is teaching us you know this american education let's even take education aside you know um school is one of the places in America where you learn both academic stuff and then also societal stuff. So you're, a lot of your society and, and your fundamental learning is being shaped at school. So you're dealing with heavily African parents telling you, you know, feeling like a form of discipline is flogging and it's fine. But then you go to school and maybe they'll tell you, oh, if anyone puts their hands on you at home, it's domestic abuse. So it's like, it was, it was very conflicting going to school and then coming home to an African household and having to go to school again. So I had to compartmentalize um, a lot of things. For a very long time, I had a lot of problems with my mom. Now we're great, but it took a very long time to become great. When I was younger, um, there was always just dissension between me and, me and my mom. Um, when I was younger, I was sexually molested. And for a long time, I don't think that contributed to maybe how, how I related with my mom. But then when I became an adult and I started to try to understand things that happened in my childhood. It got to a point when I was an adult, like, okay, why do I act the way that I'm acting? There has to be a reason why I'm acting like this. I now had to revisit things that I tried to bury, you know, when I was younger. But what I remembered is when I was um, assaulted or abused, the person that was abusing me, I know they would always say like, like if you tell your parents, there's going to be a problem. Or if you tell your mom, there's going to be a problem. So what I feel like happened is I didn't tell anyone because I thought I was going to get in trouble. And then it's just something that's just like, for some reason, not even like you even know what's right or wrong. You just know, okay, something like this that they're making, that this person making such a big deal out of, I, I guess I'm not supposed to tell anyone. I think I now blamed my mother for it because it was happening. It was happening in my household. So I think just psychologically, I just blamed my mom. I don't know why I didn't blame my dad, but I think a lot of resentment grew towards my mom. I didn't think of this until after I was 18, like over the age of 18. With me and my mom, there was a lot of conflict and it was a pattern of conflict. Like I, it got to a point where I could even gauge when there would not be a problem to me and my mom. Like an event will happen. Like, it's like for example, on my birthday, like every time before my birthday, there'll be conflict. Or like maybe there's about to be like report card is coming home. There'll be conflict. I could gauge when the conflict was happening. I spent more time with my mom because she was a nurse worked night shift, then my dad worked day shift. So it was that thing where it's like, okay, you see your mother when you come back from school, then when you're, you know, it's time for bed, my mom's going, my dad is there. We had more traditions with my dad than my mom. Like for example, we had this thing called Pancake Sunday. My dad will cook like a big, huge breakfast every Sunday. That tradition was associated with my dad. But if it's to yell, if it's to yell about a report card, it's my mom that'll be yelling about a report card. So I would attach those feelings and those emotions that I would have based on these events that would happen continuously in my childhood to each parent. So I was definitely more reserved growing up. And that's just basically because I'm the first child, the no nonsense. I can't, I can't smile too much. I can't play too much. Or if I play, I have to play in hiding because when my parents are around, it's I'm the first child. I'm overseeing my brothers. So how I would act with like my siblings who are, you know, also children, was different from how I'd act with, like, maybe friends at school. Like we've heard in a few other stories on this show, her parents sent her to boarding school in Nigeria, this time because they felt it would help her connect to her culture as a Nigerian. I went to boarding school because apparently I was too American. 
I remember having this conversation with my mother. My mother was getting ready for work and she was ironing her clothes and I was standing there on our stairs because the ironing board always used to be next to our stairs. And she was trying to explain to me why I had to go to Nigeria for boarding school. And she said, you know, we want you to learn your culture. We want you to understand, you know, where it is that you come from. And I'm looking and I'm like, so why couldn't y'all teach me that? Like, why, why is it that I have to be sent to Nigeria for an extended period of time to learn that? you're my parents, you sh- guys should teach me my culture. To me, I honestly thought it was like a lazy way of trying to teach somebody culture, like just to, you know, in essence, dump them in Nigeria and just say, oh yeah, fend for yourself. Like, you're going to go there. We're going to hope you learn Igbo. I don't know Igbo. I can't speak Igbo. Um, my parents didn't teach me Igbo. But I don't know why they thought that like taking me to boarding school would like make me almost, it's almost like build a, build a bear. Like, okay, if we just drop you there, when you come back, you're going to be a lean, mean, Igbo babe machine or something. And I feel like that was their intention. So it wasn't because I was bad. It was because they wanted me to learn my culture. So I went to a boarding school in Abia States. I am Igbo and I'm from Imo State originally. The school is called Marist Comprehensive Academy Catholic Missionary School in Uturu, Abia States. It was right next to Abia State University. I got to the school maybe like a week before. Class was meant to start. I was supposed to take an entrance exam, but they told them I came from America or something, something, something. And what had happened uh, is on the first day of class, there was like a bunch of us who didn't get placement for class. And we were all standing there. And the person was literally picking, oh yeah, you go to Jazz 2C, you go to Jazz 2D. So I think I gauged what they were doing. So I said, okay, let me arrange myself so that they'll put me in Jazz 2A. I don't even know what Jazz 2A is, but I know what I was hearing around is that, oh, Jazz 2A is the top class. That's how I entered Jazz 2A. I did, they didn't test me. They didn't quiz me. I just entered just 2A. So I knew that I had to be naturally competitive and I had a competitive spirit and the fact that I was a firstborn and just having that personality of like, you have to, against all laws, like you have to do stuff. Don't disgrace your family. Me and my immediate junior went to this school and then my, my younger two brothers went to like a primary school that was also Catholic, you know, oriented or whatever. And they went to boarding school too. They went to boarding school from like primary school. But we, me and my immediate junior went to, you know, secondary school. Nigeria is very weird because they put you in these so many situations where you have to be independent, but then they don't teach you maturity or like adulthood, right? Because you could argue being thrust into a boarding school where you're living there, you're not living with your parents, um, and you're literally fending for yourself should probably get you ready for adulthood. But then the way this country works is like you do all these things that you have to do on your own, but then authority is still a big, huge thing in Nigeria. So like you have seniors putting you in your place you have teachers putting you in your place you have these people putting you in your place and they don't really promote it doesn't really promote growth at all so it's literally i'm a 12 year old having to learn how to fetch water like i've never fetched water in my life i'm using metal bucket and carrying metal bucket on my head to fetch water we're going to prep at like 8 p.m in the night and you're walking to prep to school like from school to your hostel you have to you know learn how to hand wash like there was, it was a lot of first for me because i was not taught anything i was not taught you know how to hand wash your clothes how to, you know, iron your clothes with charcoal iron, how to just do a lot of things. And in my brain, I'm like, why are we doing, I don't understand why we're doing this. This, this, this feels like slave labor because of my Yankee belief. Like this, this is like made. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Right. But the thing about me is because I place so much emphasis on being the firstborn, I've learned how to adapt quickly. And I've learned how to just be resourceful and just like be able to just maneuver in any space that I'm in because I've had to do that all my life anyway. Being a foreigner added another complex layer to that because based on my previous visits to Nigeria, 
I knew Nigerians treated me differently because they knew I was like not from Nigeria. I just used that to mentally gauge that, okay, that's what they're probably going to do if I come to boarding school here. These are, I'm the only, there was a couple other, you know, American kids or like UK kids and stuff and people from, that were not from Nigeria. But like, I was one of the few people definitely in my set, in my class that, that was not from Nigeria. So because of the memories I remembered and the emotions I felt when I would be in the village and Nigerian people would be treating me differently, I made it my duty to make sure I would try to blend in as much as possible. I used to be a people pleaser and I learned that from my family. Like, you know, make sure your parents are happy. Make sure your aunties are happy. Make sure your teacher is happy. So what I would do is I would just try to be nice to everybody. That was to my detriment, to be honest, now that I think about it. But I would try to be nice to everyone. If seniors needed something, I would just be obedient and go and do it because I respected authority a lot. Like, if they say they need this, go and do it. If your teacher says they need this, go and do it. So for some reason, what happened was they knew I was from Yankee, but because like, I would always get like, this girl, you're a hard worker. I, did, I wouldn't expect you to be a hard worker. You know, I expect that you're from Yankee, you'd be soft. Bro, by fire, by force, I just was in the trenches. Like, I will learn quickly and just behave like everyone else. After one year, my eyes cleared and I was ready and I was just like everyone else my second year and I was full-fledged Nigerian. Full-fledged. So my mother told me I had to come back for high school. Now I told them, I was like, no, I want to stay. They're like, no, you're coming back. And in my mind, it was like, bro, y'all forced me to come here. I stay. I'm okay. I want to stay here. You forced me to come out. And it's this thing where it's like, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but for me, it's like my parents would pick and choose when they wanted me to be immersed in my culture. And it wasn't fair to me because it's like, I'm not gaining or I'm not learning about my culture on my own terms, through my own eyes, through my own lens, through my own perspective. I'm learning it through the controlled behavior of my parents. After she returned to the U.S., an opportunity to go on a mission trip to Uganda was presented to her. It would go on to have an effect on her journey going forward. So I'm a Virginia baby all throughout my life. I went to school in Virginia. Um, I went to a school called George Mason University. I majored in international studies and I double minored in um, nonprofit organizational studies and public health. When I was applying to the school that I went to, I did not want to go to that school. Um, my parents just told me, just apply there because it's a good school and it's in-state. And if we're paying for the school, then you need to apply to the schools that we say you should apply to. So I applied to the school. And when I was declaring the major, I put down international studies because it sounded good. I, I had no intention of reading, of, of studying that. I didn't even have any intention of going to that school. I thought I was going to go to Howard. That's the school I wanted to go to. I applied to schools. I left it. I was like, okay, whatever. So summer happens. I graduate, I go to Uganda on a missionary trip. I come back and then I remembered that on my George Mason application, I had put down international studies. So I just thought that, okay, I was like, okay, this actually makes sense. This, the international studies that six months ago, I was like, man, I'm not reading this. What, what am I reading this thing for? It now made perfect crystal clear sense as to why, why I declared that major. I'm a spiritual person. Like I, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. So in retrospect, it's like, okay, maybe God ordered my steps in that, in that regard. So um, it was international studies that I read. Then after my second year, I had gone to Uganda maybe like two more times. I was like, yo, I need to learn how to, like, how to run an NGO. I got a minor in NGO studies. And then by my third or last year, I think I was like, okay, I need to scale up and learn about global health. And that's why I now got my second minor in global and community health. When I had come back from boarding school, and I was in high school. I had fully embraced my Africanness, 
I was, man, I'm African. There's nothing that I can do to change it. Might as well, if I can't fight it, like embrace it. So my senior year of high school, it was a really, really, really pivotal year for me because that was the peak of me just not being serious with life. I remember there would be times where I would think like, yo, I'm doing some of this stuff that I actually don't want to do, but I can't control myself to not do it. And it almost felt like I was watching myself in a movie. Like I'm in a movie theater and I'm watching my life and I cannot control my life. Like I'm just doing anything anyhow. So one of my uncles was part of an organization, a faith-based organization that used to go to Uganda to do a missionary work. Asked me if I wanted to go to Uganda. I jokingly told him, haha, yeah, sure, I'll go. I didn't think I was going to go because I'm like, I'm not spending money for that. You're telling me it's during the summer. This is the summer of my senior year. I'm supposed to live it up and, ha- and live my best life. Why would I, you know, use my summer before college to be going to Uganda? So I told him, yes, jokingly, I didn't think anything of it. So a couple months passed and then he's like, yo, do you have any clothes that you don't wear anymore? That, you know, we usually take clothes to Uganda and we need clothes. So the way I was looking at it was like, oh, well, if I give away all my clothes, then I can buy more clothes. So I had like garbage bags of clothes from my closet that I was like just willingly ready to give away. So from the outside world, it looked like, oh my God, Jess, you're so charitable. But it was a very selfish reason. It was like, I'm trying to just get rid of these clothes so I can tell my mom to buy more clothes. So I gave him the clothes. A little more time passes and he asked me, so are you ready to go? I'm like, go where? I had even forgotten that I said I was going to go to Uganda. I'm like, I was joking, uncle. Well, he said, I already, I already wrote your name down. So you kind of have to go. I'm like, okay, but I don't have the money to go. He's like, don't worry, God will make a way. And this is before I believed in faith and all that. So I was like, whatever, I'm not going. My mother ends up paying for my trip. And I don't know how that happened because my father moved back to Nigeria after my first year of boarding school. So my father's been in Nigeria since he lives in Nemo State. So when I had come back for high school, I was not under a single parent household. And my mother was a sole financial provider for us. My parents were not divorced. Um, my parents didn't have any problem. My father just... Like many other, you know, people can relate to. My father just moved back to Nigeria. He wanted to do, quote unquote, business. My mother, as the, you know, good wife that she is, allowed her husband to go. So I came back to America and it was only my mom. So my mother paid for my first semester tuition and then paid for my Uganda trip in the same time period. And I'm like, till now, I don't know how she did it because my mother, it's not like my mother makes extensive money. She's a nurse. She just knows how to save money well. The way I was going to look at it is when I was going to Uganda, I was like, okay, bet. I'm going to have a dope story to tell my classmates when I come back to school. And then I'll go around the class and say, what did you do in the summer? My Caucasian friends will be like, oh, you went here. Oh, you went here. It comes to me and be like, oh, you know, I went to Uganda to do humanitarian work, you know, just nothing, no, nothing special. So I was using it for bragging right. There was no goodness in my heart. There was no compassion. There was nothing that caused me to go there the first time. So when I go to Uganda the first time ever, right, we go there for two weeks. So it's faith-based. So it's evangelism, you know, praying for people basically feeding the sick, praying for the widow, all that stuff, using scripture from the Bible to justify what they're doing. So what happened was the first week I got there, I was very distant from everybody. I was like, bro, I, ain't, I don't know no Bible. I can't preach no Bible to nobody. You know, whenever they'll be praying, I'll just be praying quietly. Like I really had no connection to the faith part of this, you know, mission that they were doing. So the second week happened, right? And I can remember the exact moment that I think it just snapped in my mind. We went to go do market evangelism and I had to follow them. I wasn't going to evangelize. I just had to follow them. My contribution to that trip is I was just taking pictures. I was like, okay, the only thing I can do for you people, I can snap a picture for you guys. I can give it to you guys to use for your stuff when you go back to America. So we went to the market and they were like ministering to people. And I was sitting there for some reason. I was actually listening when they were telling these people, you know, whatever they were telling them, like, you know, like God loves them. You know, Jesus loves you, all that stuff. And I think what came into my mind was the fact that it was like, wow, I am Nigerian. I am African. 
the only difference between me and these quote unquote impoverished people that they're wanting to come and give food and give is circumstance because I could have easily been born in, you know, Africa, or I can easily have been born in a different family or a different situation. And the roles could easily be reversed. And I could be these people that they're ministering to or that they're giving food or they're giving whatever. I did nothing to deserve the fact that I was born in America with dual citizenship, with all these, you know, privileges that have been afforded to me. I did absolutely nothing for it. So for some reason, I started feeling bad. I started feeling like, okay, I'm really wasting my life. Like I have all this opportunity in the palm of my hand and I didn't understand or I didn't care about it because it was given to me. I started to feel like this burden of like, I can't waste the fact that my life has been presented to me like this and something just clicked in my head. After hearing them, you know, talk to people and people giving their life to Christ and stuff, I got really angry. So how my mother would have to reach me on the on the mission field is she would have to call my uncle and my uncle would give me the phone to talk to her. My mom had called me around that time. My uncle was like, yeah, your mom was talking to him. I'm like, yeah, tell her I don't want to talk to her. And I was just like, man, screw my mom. I don't know what was going on, but I was just really, really angry. So that night I was in my hotel room and I was just mad. I don't understand. So my uncle had come to come and see me in my room. So he was knocking and I wasn't going to open the door. I was like, man, if he thinks I'm sleeping, then he just leave me alone. He can't free me. So he keeps knocking and I open the door. So he comes inside and he wants to talk. He's talking to me like, you know, what's wrong? Why didn't you want to talk to your mom? I was like, yeah, I doesn't feel like talking to her. Like, you know, screw her. Like, I don't, I just don't feel like talking to her. I didn't know what was going on. I don't know if it's because of what I heard in the, the market. I don't know what happened. My uncle told me that, yo, your mom was calling you because she wanted to tell you that she's sick. They said that she went to the doctors and that they saw something or something like that. And something was like, yo, so you mean to tell me if your mom died now, Jessica, you will not talk to your mom because of whatever thing that's doing you. So I told my uncle, I was like, oh yeah, call my mom. So I call my mom and we have, that's like the first time that I can remember in a very long time that I really had a heart to heart with my mom. You know, my mom just all of a sudden told me, you know what, Jessica, if there's anything I've done to offend you, I'm telling you sorry right now. That's the first time I can remember my mom telling me sorry. I'm like, what is going on? I don't really understand. So when that happened, I was like, yo, I told my uncle, I said, you know what? This God you're talking about, okay, I'm done running. I'm done, I'm done running. Okay, whatever. Whatever. What, what, do, we, do we need to pray? Whatever. So that was when I really sat down. And I was like, okay, God, if you heal my mom, fine, I'll serve you. I'll do it. This, this is how you're going to get my attention? Okay, no problem. I'll do it. So that night, like, I guess you say I rededicated my life to Christ. After that happened that night, that was, that was like August 2011. It was two days before our mission was over. The second day, it was a Thursday. We were having like a medical outreach program. Mind you, I was feeling like, you know, this whole sense of like, oh my God, the fuels that you get when, you know, you have some type of life-changing encounter. As I was getting off the bus, all these kids ran up to me. You know, I told you the week prior, I was distant. I didn't talk to anybody. I told people, leave me alone, don't touch me. These same kids that were like, you know, trying to touch me and be around me, I'd be like, yeah, no, don't touch me. You know, you're dirty. Don't touch me. Day after, you know, that, that encounter happened, these kids were running towards me and I was embracing all of them. I did not care about disease. I did not care if these had ringworm. I didn't care if they had, I didn't even care if they had some type of, you know, illness that cannot be cured. I was just hugging all of them. I was holding all of them. As I was embracing all of them and playing with them, something in my mind said, you're going to do something for these children. It was just one random quiet thought. I was like, what are you talking about? Whatever. I thought that was me that was speaking. So I left it alone. So when I go back to America, you know, I'm trying to tell people that, you know, yo, yo, I found God or whatever. I found God. People thought I was joking. Like, what are you talking about? This one. It's not this one. This one that two weeks ago we saw you doing A, we saw you doing B. So nobody believes me. 
except my uncle and his wife. And they're the ones that encouraged me and motivated me to like, you know, keep on the straight and narrow. Obviously, I'm not as radical as I was back then with my spirituality and stuff. But if not for them, I don't think I would be where I am now. That's how I formulated a public health initiative to teach young Ugandan children hygiene. On grassroots level, we just bring all the kids when they'd have medical missions while their parents were being taught about medicine or like, you know, preventative measures to combat them from, you know, illness and disease. We'll come up with like songs and like dance and like, you know, interactive ways to teach them that if you um, conduct proper hygiene on yourselves, that it will help you prevent some of the diseases that you guys keep coming here every year to get medicine for. I mean, that became like a whole thing. And I've gotten awards for that. I did that for like maybe like four more years before I stopped going to Uganda. Mind you, when I was going to Uganda, I had no burden for Nigeria at all. Like, I was like, man, if I keep doing work in East Africa, I'm fine. I don't care if I go to Nigeria. So this is when I used to be on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook no more. Y'all can have Facebook. Every year we'd come back, they'd like put up pictures and video or whatever to show people what we did in Uganda in order to fund donations for the next year. Because the work we would do, we'd have to raise money to go. They had posted my pictures up on their organization's page. And this one guy... I want to say it was Igbo. I don't remember, but he was definitely Nigerian. He was like, why don't you guys help your own country? Like, why are you helping another person's country? You know, this is a problem with Nigerians. Nigerians will never come and give back to Nigeria. They will be giving back to other people. And I got so irritated because I'm just like, why does it matter? As long as you're an African giving back to Africa, I don't see the problem. I was like, okay, whatever. He's, he's tripping. The thing about criticism is even when you brush them aside, they sometimes linger and make you rethink your position. A part of Jess was moved by the comments you saw on Facebook and she decided to go to Nigeria for her youth service after university. Adapting to life back in Nigeria wasn't the smoothest, though. So when I told my mom I want to go to do NYC, and I had to convince for months, right? She finally said, do you know what? I'll let you go, but you must stay with people that I designate you to stay with. I said, okay, no problem. Thank God for that family, because if not, like, I wouldn't have been able to come to Nigeria the first time, and then, you know, I wouldn't be who I am right now. Two of their children were also going to do NYC that year, and they wanted to all get us sort of, I didn't know what sorting meant, but sort us so we could get Lagos, right? So I was like, okay, cool, whatever. They tried to sort us. I was like, okay, I just assumed, okay, that means I'm going to go to Lagos when I get to, you know, when I get to Lagos. I get to Lagos, and then I find out that I'm being deployed to River State. So I was looking, I was like, okay, the thing y'all say y'all was going to sort, what happened? Y'all ain't sorting nothing because this is not, why am I going to Rivers? So I went to River State. I did the camp. When I say I did the camp, right, I'd be looking at people like, oh, I signed my paper and I left. My dad called somebody and then my aunt called somebody and then I just had to do and I just came the first day of camp and then the last day of camp. Guy, I carried mattress on my head to go and put on my bunk. I bought buckets. I bought sponge. And I did that three weeks like everybody else. When I say I participated, bro, I was the head of my marching platoon. I did miss NYSC and got first runner up. Apparently I was supposed to win, but the reason why I didn't win is because they found out I was trying to redeploy. So they're like, we can't give it to the person that redeployed. Like I was immersed in that thing. I was in those NYSC streets. There's no punishment that didn't give everybody that I was not doing with them. This was, this was boarding school all over again. Me having to re-immerse myself, become resourceful, adapt quickly to camouflage and be like, you know, every other Nigerian there. And I learned this the hard way. As much as you want to form that you're like everyone else in this country, they will alienate you regardless, right? And I didn't understand this because I would get frustrated like, why are y'all treating me different? I'm literally trying to be like y'all. Why are you treating me different? Why are you treating me different? My upbringing causes me to be different automatically. My voice causes me to be different automatically. The way I think and I process things causes me to be different automatically. And what happened was, it was the day for you know to prove that you deserve to be redeployed, right? And NYC has this really dumb rule. The only reason why you can be deployed is if you're married or if you're sick. 
Like you have a sickness that causes you so much, you know, distress that you need to be close to your hospital, right? Obviously, I'm not married. And so what ended up happening is I had to make a fake doctor's note to come and say I had one disease. I couldn't even pronounce the disease. So when it came for my interview, I was nervous as hell, but I was just really, really polite to the people. Yes, sir, no, sir. And what ended up happening is one of the people came out and was like, you know what? You're really polite. Where do you want to go to? I said, please, I really want to go to Lagos because that's where my family's like, well, Lagos is full. Lagos wasn't full. I just didn't pay them money. They were like, you know what? Well, Lagos is full. So can you do Ogun State? I was like, I mean, I really, really need Lagos. But he's like, well, I can't help you there. And I was like, well, I'm not about to bribe them. So I ended up being redeployed to Ogun State. And I served. The school they put me in, I went there. That's how I learned how to master public transport in Nigeria. I would have to take like three buses from the family's house that I was staying at and bike and marawa and this and this to get to my PPA by myself. This is somebody born and raised in Yankee. The two years I did in boarding school, it's not like I explored Nigeria. I was in boarding school. And I come back how many years later and I'm pricing bike is 100 naira. Shabi is not 50 naira. How can you come? Like I'm maneuvering this by myself. And sometimes I would just be on the bike and the dusty roads and I'll be on the bus as the bus is breaking down. And I'm like, Jessica, you left your middle class American lifestyle to come and be fighting with these people on the streets of Lagos for what? Just because I thought I wanted to give back to my country. More from Jess after this short break. For more of my discussion with Jess, head out to patreon.com slash wale. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash wale. And sign up for behind the scenes content, bonus stories and more. Also, don't forget to give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. This helps more people come across the show. Now back to Jess. What I had realized is that all the reasons why I did NYSC and all the reasons why I was trying to come to Nigeria, I don't want to say I didn't have an interest for it anymore. I think I was just discouraged. When I had first come to NYSC and I would tell people what I did in Uganda, right? They would be so patronizing or condescending, like, why are you doing that? Like, for what? Or, oh, I guess that's cute. But like, for like, why would you go out of your way to go to villages in Uganda to go and help these people? The reason I would tell people my stories, I was trying to figure out people who are like-minded, like identify like-minded people to see maybe if I can partner with them and like, you know, try and do something. And every single person I would talk to, right, from their privileged pedestal that they were sitting on, they didn't fathom why I would go and try and replicate that in Nigeria. That's one. Two, Nigerians are entitled as heck. So in Uganda, I used to raise money, right? Like I've raised thousands and thousands of dollars to get myself to Uganda, to get other young people to Uganda, to fund the program that I was doing there. And you'd raise the money, you'd give them Uganda, they will buy what you told them to buy. You give your own brother in Nigeria money to help you buy something. Your brother will eat your money. They come and tell you a story that, oh, suddenly, suddenly something happens to the money. And you're sitting there like, bro, you're my family. I gave you money to help me do something and you didn't do it. So I was already scared of like having to raise funds, donor funds. And then because I, don't, I didn't live in Nigeria, I didn't know Nigeria well, I would have to entrust somebody with the money to help me run around and do stuff. So I'm not saying that all Nigerians are bad, but all the Nigerians I counted at that time discouraged me from wanting to continue doing that work. So I never pursued it in Nigeria. But what had happened is during my NYC year, that organization that goes to Uganda, they also go to Benin Republic. So that year of 2016, instead of me going to Uganda, I went to Benin Republic. Now, is this same NYC that gives you one stupid rule? You can't travel when you're doing your NYC. You can't travel. You can't travel. Meanwhile, 
people that I knew in NYC were traveling to London for this, traveling to America for that. And I'm like, bro, just because you're following your rule up and down and you're sitting here suffering yourself that you can't even go across the border of Nigeria to go to Benin Republic. Girl, go to Benin Republic. So I went to Benin Republic, right? And that was my missionary humanitarian effort for that year. By the end of my 2016 year, I'm passing out of NYC. I have no desire to want to do humanitarian relief in Nigeria. But what had happened was all my experiences of going to social settings and like meeting artists, right? It birthed an interest in like the music business for me. I come from a nonprofit background and I was carrying that nonprofit mindset into for-profit sector. That thing messed me up because I was like, yo, I want to give back to this industry that has, you know, helped me consume all this music and help me become African because now it's cool to be African and I love the African music and I just want to give back. I want to give back. I want to give back. So what caused my desire to want to stay in Nigeria after NYC wasn't humanitarian work, wasn't missionary work, wasn't trying to give back to Nigeria. It was trying to give back to the music industry. So I told my parents, I was like, yo, I finished NYC. I think I want to stay. Mom was like, bro, you just told me you wanted to do one year. What is this? Like, what is this rubbish that you're doing? You need to come back. I'm like, nah, I'm not coming back. My mom was like, well, I'm not going to fund you. I said, no, I'll, I'll figure it out myself. I'm very stupid though. Figure out how. I didn't have no job. I didn't have no nothing. I just had my NYC certificate and that was it. I had met an artist when I was here during my NYC year and I, this guy was so talented to me. I was like, yo, you make such fire music, but there's a lot of artists that are not even as good as you that are like popping. Like, why is there a disconnect between you and not, you know, making it or whatever? I naively said, guy, I don't know you like that, but I want to help you like a fool. I want to help you. I want to help. I don't, don't worry about me. I just want to help you. You don't even have to pay me. I just want to help you. So ending of my NYC year, I had to convince my mom that I want to stay. And my mom was trying to use finance to like kind of discourage me from saying like, if I don't fund you, she thought that if she said she wouldn't fund me, I won't stay. I said, don't worry, mom, I'll find my way. I don't even know how I thought I was going to find my way, but I just thought I was going to find my way. So I think that scared her. And she now gave me money, said, okay, you know what? Rent an apartment. This is startup money. Like, you know, whatever. I think she just realized like she didn't want me to stay, but she realized that I was determined and I was going to stay. The week I was supposed to get an apartment. My auntie from London calls me really randomly. And she's like, yo, there's something I need you to help me do for two months. I'll fly you to the UK and I'll pay you. I need you to just watch over my son while we're doing something. I forgot what she was trying to do. So I was thinking, I was like, okay, if I go to UK and she pays me, I'll just save all that money and then bring it back to Nigeria. And then I'll use it as, you know, money to be hustling with this artist because I don't want to ask this artist to pay me. So I tell this artist, I'm like, okay, this is the plan. I'm not abandoning you, but because you can't pay me because you don't have money, let me go to UK. Let me make small bar and I'll come back and then we can start hustling ourselves. I try to assure him that, yo, I'm not leaving you. Like, just chill for me. Let me go make money and come back. I go to UK. I don't know who spoke to the guy. They started telling him, how can somebody say that they're your manager and they left you in Nigeria like this? How can they do this, do this? So everything I told the guy, it fumbled. Like, the guy just came with this weird energy like, yo, I don't know why you left me here. How can you just leave me? You, don't, you must not really want to be my manager. It was in my uncle's house. I was crying like, bro, like, I really was ready to risk my life. I'm someone who puts my dreams on hold for people. Like, if there's one thing that I want to stop doing that in 2020, I can put my dreams, I can put my goals, I can have 10 things that's a personal project I'm doing. If I believe in somebody, I can throw all that stuff away to focus on this person because I'm very service-oriented. I don't mind serving people at all. I remember in high school, we'd have to do community service to, like, get hours towards credit. In elementary school, I was doing charity work from young, right? So I've always had this ingrained in me. So this guy told me like, yeah, you can't, he basically was trying to use that to tell me he can't be my manager. I can't be his manager anymore because I left him manager. And I'm like, I didn't leave you in Nigeria. You don't have money to pay me. I literally told you, let me go out and get money. Like I'm literally working for money so that I can sustain myself so you don't have to pay me. It didn't work. 
While dealing with the news of her artist leaving her, she was also finding it hard to adjust to being in the UK, which affected her mental health. I was going through it when I was there. Mind you, remember how I said earlier that I never feel like I have a right to tell my parents when something is wrong with me because I'm their first child. I always have to have everything, you know, everything has to make sense. Everything has to look like I have everything under control. There was this one day I woke up and I was just crying. My mom had called me. Unfortunately, that day, I couldn't hide the fact that I was like really, really down. And then she's like, yo, if you need to come back to America, like, let me know. So I, at first I wanted to form stubborn and be like, nah, I need to really ride this out. Like if I'm an adult, I have to do this by myself. Not understanding that that was so unhealthy because it's just like, you're allowed to make mistakes and you're allowed to not know everything and you're, and you're allowed to like lean on people. But for some reason, I didn't understand that. And I think it was just the, the first child burden and the only daughter burden that I had on me. So I told her, you know what? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll come back to America. I told her I'll pay for the ticket by myself. She was going to buy it, but I was like, nah, I want to form independent. I'll pay for it myself. I still had a month left in the UK, right? So I told my aunt, I was like, yo, I want to go back to America for a month, then come back to UK and take that return ticket from London back to Lagos. I need to go to America because I need, I don't know, I just, I need to get off from this area. So they said, okay, no wala. I don't know why. I only bought a one-way ticket to America. And I was like, oh, you know, let me just buy a one-way ticket to America and then I'll buy another one-way to meet up with the London ticket that's supposed to go back to Lagos. Five days before I was supposed to buy the ticket to go back to London. They canceled my London to Lagos ticket. Something happened with Eric Air that this just stopped running, right? So they, they were canceling my people's flight. So they canceled my flight. And they said, oh, in order for you to get your money back, you need to come back to Lagos and come and file complaints. It was a third-party travel agent that I got the ticket from. I need to go back to Lagos to go and talk to them to get my money back. I'm like, why can't I just get it over the phone? I emailed them. I called them. I did not get that money back. Technically, my return ticket is gone. I've not bought my return ticket. I didn't even buy the return ticket from U.S. to London, right? So essentially, I was actually stuck in America. My mom was looking at me like, I so. The whole time, she wanted me to stay in America anyway. So I thought I was like, yo, they just canceled my flight. And I didn't have enough money to buy a flight ticket from U.S. back to Lagos at the time. And my mom was not about to fund that. My mom was probably even like her prayers were answered or something. Like, she's not even going back to Nigeria. So for the next... 10 months I was in America and the whole time I was in America I was trying to plot how to come back to Lagos after all these avenues I thought I was going to use to get back failed I just got a job my intention was okay let me get this job and save the money to go back to um, Nigeria I was working for like um, a surgeon private practice right I don't know what he was doing his finances were messed up it was like I was living in Nigeria inside America they were funny with our paychecks. They were funny. And I'm just like, why is my life like? Like, I don't understand. This thing was getting messed up. And I felt, when I say that I felt stuck, I was like, I can't go and get like a corporate job or like a job in line with my field. And then I, I'll feel stuck there. I want to stay there and be working. I just want to get a job. I'll make money, rack the money and go back to Nigeria. But then that didn't work with the job that I got. So one day I was at work and I had just got paid. Something was like, just go online during your break and go and buy a ticket. One random day in June. This was like first week, June 2017. Go online. I started looking for tickets. I have a good way of finding cheap tickets because I always travel off peak season. So y'all be talking on, uh, they saw a ticket for 2000 I said I've never paid more than 1500 for no ticket. Even the ticket I bought to come to Nigeria that last time was like $500. Granted, it was a one way, but like even people's one ways be like 700 800 or whatever. So I find this ticket. I buy that ticket without even thinking. I didn't tell my mom. I don't tell anyone. I just, I just bought the ticket. I just told my cousin. I was like, yo, I just bought the ticket on my break. That was it. 
as much of a, a control freak as I am, I'm a very go with the flow type person. So I bought this ticket and I was having anxiety. Like, how am I about to tell my mother I just bought a ticket to go to Nigeria? I think like one month or like some weeks passed. And it was one night when I forgot what happened. I was sad about something and I went to go have a heart to heart with my mom. Like I can count the number of heart to hearts I've had with my mom in my life. And that night, my mom was like, you know, trying to encourage me or something. And then it was funny because she watched some Christian channel on TV. I forgot what it's called. And then she turned on the channel and it was talking about depression or something. And she was talking to me and it was along the lines of, yo, I feel sad. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, so she talks to me and then we pray. And then I have this piece to be like, mom, I'm not trying to, you know, be whatever. But I bought a ticket to go to Nigeria. I don't need you to start yelling. The type of anxiety that was doing in my chest, I was like, mom, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, I've bought the ticket to go back to Nigeria. And she sat there and she's like, well, if you feel like God is sending you to go to Nigeria, I can't hold you. And that's when I got her little semi-blessing to go back. So I bought the ticket in June, December 6th, 2017. I packed my load and I came to Nigeria. I think I had like $300 on my body that my friend even borrowed me to go to Nigeria. And I had like 200K in my account from 2016. I had no plan. I had no place to stay. I had no job. I just knew that deep down in my gut, I needed to come. Maybe like a couple of days prior, before I was supposed to get on the plane to come back, I got a job offer. Shout out to Not Just Okay. They gave me a job to help them with like digital marketing for their app. I just took the job because I was like, yo, I guess I need a job when I move back. So I just took the job, right? Without understanding what they were asking me to do, I could do it because it was like for social media and like digital marketing. And I actually did that with like my brand anyway, because I was a model then having to do like marketing for like my mission trips and stuff like that. Like I naturally knew all that stuff based on experience, but it's not like I went to school for it. So they gave me a shot and they were like, we'll hire you. So that was how I got my job. Right. So it's not like I was applying. It was literally the first job I got. I said, well, I'm taking it because I need to have a way to sustain myself when I get to Nigeria. I didn't have a place to stay. One of my um, friends is like, okay, you can stay at my house for a week as you like get your feet off the ground, right? And the problem is because all this is crash course to me, I don't like, I don't have anyone advising me. No one is telling me it takes you like months to find a house. No one is telling you it takes you, you know, this, this, and this. No one telling you that electricity is going to prevent you from, do like just things that if somebody would have told me, I would have had a very different experience coming in. I didn't have any of that. So I come to Nigeria and I'm staying at my friend's house. That one week turns to one month. Shout out to my friend for letting me stay for one month because I'm sure having overstaying guests is like very irritating in this country. And I know housing is a very big issue in this country um, for a lot of us that don't come here with like, oh, I have an auntie, I have an uncle, I can stay. What's actually wild is 90% of my family, I have a very large extended family, live in Nigeria. But I said I'm not living with any one of them. If I'm coming here, I'm doing this by myself. No one is telling me I'm staying in their house. No one is going to open their mouth to say this one that I housed. I said I'm not staying. I would rather sleep under a bridge. That's a bit radical, but I'd rather stay under than to stay in any of their houses. So um, what ended up happening is my friend was like, okay, do you know what? You can rent out this room and I'll just be your landlord. I was like, fine, it's, it's okay. So what I did was I paid six months rent up straight and stayed there for six months. I literally was winging life. And it's not like I had any plan. I was just like, I just know I want to be in Lagos and I, I feel like I'll figure out my way. And I think part of the reason why I was so motivated to come despite me not having any plans is because all my life I've been restricted. I've had to people please for my parents. I've had to be the firstborn here. I've been told what school to go to. I've been told what to do. I've been told to go to this boarding school. I've been told to do this, behave like this, behave like this. And for once I was like, yo, I want to do something for myself. I don't care how wild it is. I'm going to do it. 
when I had taken the job of Not Just Okay, I thought it was in uh, alignment with what I wanted to do. Okay, they're the biggest music blog in Africa. I want to get into, you know, trying to figure out how to manage artists and stuff like that. So I was working. Now, I was working remotely because the key people of Not Just Okay, they actually don't live in Nigeria. They live abroad. They had Nigerian staff, but I was the only person with like a kind of executive or bigger role that was living in Nigeria. So we would have to do, you know, conference calls. I'd have to work remotely, right? Nobody warned me how this country is. My internet will not work. Problem. I can't phone in for half the conference calls we have to do. The research I need to do online. I can't even do it because the internet, where I was staying, if it's Petronet, oh, it wasn't working. If it's Swift, it wasn't working. You know, I didn't understand all these setbacks, right? So it was hindering me from doing the work that I was supposed to be doing for not just okay. To my boss and to my supervisors, it's like, okay, why is it that when we need to have a conference call, you're not available? Why is it when we need you to do this, you're not meeting deadlines? And it's like, it's somehow when you have to be telling them, yo, my internet is not working. Yo, my listening is not working. Yo, they took lights and they didn't bring lights. Yo, they're working on the gen. Yo, they're doing this. I think from their own end, it looked like, it definitely would look like excuse after excuse after excuse. And this is the first time I'm, I'm sure they're hiring somebody in my capacity that has to work and move in Nigeria. They have a lot of Nigerian staff, but those people that were born and raised in Nigeria, they know how to maneuver in this country despite these setbacks. They know that oh, if Jen is broken, they know whose friend's house they can go to to go and work. If internet is not doing this, they know where they can go. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I was trying to balance the chaos and the how destabilized this country is and how Lagos is with trying to you know work a job in this capacity. I worked with Not Just Okay for a year and then they actually let me go like exactly a year later. They let me go because of lack of communication. But what was wild is the reason why I had lack of communication that final time when they let me go is because I had got evicted from my apartment that I had gotten after I had stayed at my friend's house for that six months. The apartment that I now got, like my first apartment, the landlord bounced me from the house. The same week that I got evicted, that was the same week that they were like, yo, we can't reach you. Like, what's going on? We're just going to have to terminate your contract. And I didn't ha- I did not have any energy in my body to fight. I was like, don't worry. It's cool. Like, I understand. For my own end, it looks like I'm not being productive. I thought I could juggle Lagos. I, Lagos was juggling me. It won. Like, j- just zero. Lagos, hundred. I get a two-bedroom apartment with a housemate. We were friends at the time. She's the one that handled, like, signing the lease and everything, right? I was like, yo, you know how to deal with people in Nigeria. You handle it. I'll just pay my 50% of the rent when you finalize it. So that's what happened. So I think, like, six months in, my housemate decides that they want to go to get their master's, right, abroad. So I'm like, okay, no problem. Like, fine, if you want to go, that's cool. We still have six months left on the lease. This was second half of 2018. So December, I go to the East with my mom and my brother. We go there for a couple of weeks. My brother wanted to shoot a music video, so I followed him to the East to help him produce the video. And then we come back. We travel from Emo to Lagos by road that day. We come back to Lagos, and I'm finally like, wow, I'm back in Lagos. It's a new year, you know, fresh start, like whatever. I think I'm about to go back to work and, you know, go back to my house and, you know, continue my Lagos hustling, you know, whatever. My mom was staying in a hotel because the next morning she had to travel. Her and my brother had to travel, so I stayed in the hotel with them. And I remember... The day I come back, my housemate texts me and she's like, oh, the landlord is saying that everyone should leave the house. And I'm looking, I'm like, what do you mean by everyone should leave the house? I don't understand, there's only two people in the house. The landlord said we should leave, what? I don't understand. And she was saying all this stuff. I can't remember exactly what was said, fine. So I said, okay, let me get back to my house and then let me figure that out, right? The next day I get back to my house and there's new gate men and they're looking at me funny like, who are you? And I'm like, I live here. I show them my key and let me come inside. 
I go inside my flat. Something just feels really, really off. I'm really angry at my housemate because I'm like, I don't know what you did or what happened before I left here, but I don't know why I would come back and I'm getting threatened to like, the, the process to even get this house was long because we were two single women. So people were not trying to rent us houses. We want to rent houses. house tells you have to go and get a male guarantor. We can't use a woman as a, you know, our guarantor. Like it's rubbish. And I'm traumatized and I'm mentally drained at this point because I'm just like, bro, I don't know how any of this stuff works. I literally let her do everything because she's the one that I feel like would know how to do it more than me because I'm coming from America. Like, what do I know about renting an apartment or whatever? So I'm in my house for maybe like three days. And on the fourth day, I get this gut feeling to be like, yo, just start packing your stuff. I don't know why I feel like this, but I'm just like, okay, whatever. I'm tired, but I'll do it. So I just pray a little bit. And then I stop praying and I start packing my stuff. Not even up to 15 minutes later, I get a phone call. I pick up the phone. It's my gate man. He's telling me, you know, my dad said you need to come out from this house. I'm like, madam, who? I don't get it. He's like, she did come upstairs now. She did come upstairs now. So I'm like, what is this? I hang up my phone. I hear them knocking on the door and I open the door and it's my landlord's wife. Mind you, I've never met this woman in my life. When we were doing the whole lease, everything, I never met her. All of a sudden, she's the one coming to talk to me, right? So she looks at me and the way this woman looks at me, right? She looks at me like I do runs. Like she looks at me like I'm a prostitute. That's how she's looking at me. And she's like, yeah, the person that we rented this house to is not staying here anymore. So you need to leave. The thing about me, I don't like conflict. People can push me over because I don't like conflict. Like, I do not know how to deal with conflict at all. So she's talking to me and I'm like, you know, auntie, you know, good afternoon. I don't need to be calling somebody auntie, but I'm just like, you know what? Maybe if I just appease her by stroking her ego, I can de-escalate the situation. So I say, auntie, good afternoon. I actually leased this place with the person that you're talking about. She's like, well, we've ne- we don't know who you are. I'm like, your husband has met me multiple times. Your husband has helped me fix things in this house multiple times. You may not know me because I've never met you, but I know your husband. He's like, my husband said he doesn't know you and you need to leave here. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, I can show you proof that I've paid 50% of this rent. And she's like, you're not the one we signed a lease with. You're squatting here. You need to leave. I'm like, bro, my body's getting hot because I'm like, I don't have anybody here to call. Like, I don't like the family that I said, I don't want anything to do with while I'm here. It's not like that. I'll not start calling them. Which friend am I about to start calling to start explaining this type of situation? She's like, you need to leave here. You have 24 hours to leave. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I need at least a week to find a place. Like, you can't come here on a Saturday evening and tell me by tomorrow evening I need to be out of here. She's looking at me like, you have until tomorrow. If you're not here, we'll call police. And I'm scared because it's just like, people think like privilege really helps you. Privilege doesn't really help you in Nigeria. It doesn't matter how much privilege you have. Nigeria will still Nigeria for you. And you will feel how useless this country can be. She told me, if, if I don't leave here, problem is going to happen tomorrow. I just gently closed the door. And I was like, okay, we need to go into survival mode. What am I going to do? I just start packing my stuff. So I think it was my landlord's driver. That's the first time where I was like, not everybody in this country is wicked. I don't know why. My landlord's driver was like, don't tell my old guy that I'm helping you, but I'm going to help you call someone to help you move your stuff. He brings a person. Guy, I paid an arm and a leg, but I was like, you know what? At this point, I don't have, I don't have energy to negotiate. I just need to get myself out of here. So in 12 hours, I packed all my stuff. By Sunday afternoon, I was out of that house. Never saw my landlord again. I had bounced around a little bit, right? And it was so wild because... It's in these moments, haha, pun intended. It's in these moments that I realize, like, Jessica, why are you suffering yourself here? Like, there's part of me that's like, this country is not for you. This country does not care if anything happens to you. Another part is like, I have to be resilient. No one's going to kick me out of Nigeria. I'm going to leave when I want to leave. So I was bouncing around a little bit. So I stayed at my friend's house. From there, I stayed at one of my friend's BQs for like two weeks. Then from there, I now had a friend that, this person was my friend in passing. They weren't even my friend like that. That person was God sent because for the next however many months, they let me stay there rent free, did not ask you for anything, no ulterior motive, no nothing. 
And then I stayed there and then I got a new place. I stayed there for a little bit longer. I went to America. I came back. I'm still there, but I'm about to move into my flat because I was building stuff inside my flat or whatever. Yeah, that experience was super, super traumatizing. I've suffered from anxiety, but I didn't know that I was suffering from anxiety until I was older and they told me that was anxiety. Now I have like extremes. I don't trust people here. I don't trust anybody. I feel like it is cognitive dissonance that I'm still living here because it's like this whole place is not like this place is trash. I'm not even about to sit here and be like, oh, Nigeria is so great. It's unfortunate that my line of work, we curate Lagos in a way that it makes it look like Lagos is cool. Lagos is cool, but Lagos is also wicked and not your friend. Like this place is not your friend. If you don't have a thick skin, if you don't really have resiliency or like a defined reason as to why you're here or like some type of roadmap, you're going to have it tough here. She talks about what she's involved in at the moment. I'm a cultural influencer and content creator. So if a brand reaches out to me to create content, you know, with Nigerian mind, they'll pay me for that. I do a lot of creative work in terms of like branding, marketing for artists. Um, that's still a relatively new sector. So there's still a lot of artists that don't see the value in it. So they're not paying. But for the few people that do see a value in it, they'll pay me and I'll help them come up with like marketing, consulting for their brands and like, you know, what they should do with music. So I'm heavily involved in the creative space. For those that may have heard this word before, um, in terms of Alte, I'm very heavily involved in the Alte movement and just the emergence of that culture and the pushing of that culture into more mainstream spaces so more people can accept it. And then I do like a lot of other stuff. I used to model, but I don't I don't model anymore. Nigerian, they're modeling, they can carry it. I don't I don't I don't want it again. But yeah, those are like the main kind of things I do. I lot I do a lot of other like odd things in between. Just like every other negotiation, like people have like 10 jobs that they do. But those are my main sources of like income and like what my hands are currently in right now. Lastly, I asked why she hasn't been tempted to move back to the US. Here's what she had to say. If I'm gonna be straight, the reason that I think I'm still here is that in America. A lot of the creative work I was doing, whether it's modeling or creating content, speaking to people and like, you know, helping people do creative things in different capacities in America, you can literally do it with zero dollars and you can create a product that is high quality and be proud. So I was very big on collaborative work when I was in America. When I moved to Nigeria, that collaborative work showed me pebble because people will run over you. People will take the piss. People will like treat you anyhow. People, because you form relatability, they'll not use it to form familiarity, and then that will bring disrespect, like things like that. I think what is motivating me is, although it's harder to achieve quality work or like results here, when you achieve it, it feels more impactful to me because it's like, despite all the odds, we were able to crank out this content. Despite all the odds, I was able to, you know, partner with international brands and create content in Nigeria. As opposed to America where, content creation and influencer and all this stuff is already oversaturated. It's still a relatively new market in Nigeria. In a sense, it feels like I'm being part of something that's pioneering. And I think that's what motivates me. Obviously, money motivates me, but it's not a driving force for me a lot of the time. A very large part of fulfillment for me is emotional fulfillment. Like if I feel like what I'm doing is causing impact or it's worth something or it's affecting people in a positive way, I can do it for a pay cut. Because when I move to Nigeria, that's a, that's a pay cut in itself. You come to Nigeria, you do the same work you would do in America. In America, they'll pay hourly wage. This one, they'll pay you 50K and tell you, guy, that's how much we have in our budget is 50K. And then when you convert 50K and 50K is not even $200, you're, look, you're looking at yourself like, why the hell am I here? Like, I don't understand. But then you have to realize that that 50K you're making, the average Nigerian is not making that 50K. Like the money that I make here off jobs, it's easier to make larger amounts here. But then if you look at it, like trying to convert it to dollar, you're just fooling yourself. But it sustains you while you're in Nigeria. So yeah, the reason why I'm still here is honestly is because the work that you do when you finally are able to do it, it has more purpose. 
it's just creating this work that challenges people my age to feel like, yo, if this person can do it, if Jess can do it, then I can do it too. Or the younger generation coming up, if they see people like me be represented in, you know, media spaces, then they'll be encouraged to be themselves as well. I hope you enjoyed that story. Jess and I spoke for about three hours. Like the last episode, it's a story that if you're trying to find your way, you're trying to make certain moves. It puts a lot of things in perspective. For people thinking of moving back to Nigeria or other African countries, this is a story that could help you understand what you're going to face, help you understand the challenges you might face there. Like she talked about accommodation that she spoke about finding people to help you with whatever you're doing and finding the right people quite a few people are moving back home now uh, which i think is interesting because me personally at this point in my life i don't have such a yearning to move back some other day i'm gonna speak about some of my reasons for not wanting to live on the continent but i think this is a good conversation to have Thanks to Jess for doing this. She's, she's one of the nicest people that I know. As I said earlier, if you want to listen to some parts of this story that didn't make the episode, head out to patreon.com slash that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash You can subscribe there, join for extra content, you know, help support the work that I do. This takes a lot of work, you know, so just if you want to support, just go on there and pledge whatever amount you want to use to support. Thank you so much. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends. Don't forget to share it on a social media platform. Um, message me. Let me know how you like the podcast. And um, let's, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. Also, if you have a story you want to share with me, you can always find me on Twitter at KingWale, K-I-N-G-W-O-L-E. Or you can send me a message on WhatsApp. The number is 347-370-9360. That's with a plus one if you're outside the US. So thanks so much for listening to this episode. I appreciate you always listening. The next episode is going to be with you in two weeks. Till then, take care of yourself. Take care of the people around you. Have fun and love yourself. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode. Bye.